Welcome to Now Playing's review of Inland Empire. Is there a murder in your film? Ah, uh, no. It's not my own story. I think you are wrong about that. Brutal fucking murder. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. There's a lot of crazy shit going on there. People having weird dreams and seeing things that weren't in there. Hosted by Stuart. They all called him the Phantom. Jacob. Look at me. And tell me if you've known me before. And Arnie. Who are those people? Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. I could tell you stories of kill your hair. And join Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob at NowPeaking.com for reviews of every episode of the Twin Peaks series. Would you like a coffee? That would be lovely. Thank you. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. What the fuck are you guys talking about? Listener discretion is advised. I'm going to find out one day. When will you tell it? Today, we're trying to figure out what the fuck is Inland Empire. Starring Laura Dern, Jeremy Irons, Justin Theroux, Harry Dean Stanton, kind of. Directed by David Lynch. I do not think it will be much longer now. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. This is Stuart in... Where am I? (laughs) I'm scared. I'm a whore. And this is Jacob, and what is going on? What the bloody hell is going on? (laughs) (laughs) It happens to the best of them. I just want to say every hip director, if they hang in the game long enough, makes this film. You start out, you make a name for yourself making edgy, transgressive movies, and Hollywood comes according, and you take opportunities that expand your audience, but they also dull your edge. And at a certain point, usually when you're kind of over the hill, considered passe, you say it's Hollywood's fault and I'm going to go back to my indie roots and I'm going to spurn everything that I've become to be edgy and cool again. Oh, that explains why Spielberg did Crystal Skull. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe that was his version of it, but usually it's a bad thing. I mean, I, I can honestly say in most cases, when Roman Polanski followed up Rosemary's Baby with the sex comedy What, or Gus Van Zandt made all of those slow moving movies like Jerry, whatever the hell Terrence Malick is releasing these days, most of these movies are made without a thought about the audience. They're made for the filmmaker. And while that can be meaningful and good work can come out of that, I think it can be quite a chore for those that are fans to try and get through. And that's certainly how I've always treated Inland Empire, the only David Lynch film I've only wanted to see once. I didn't know this movie existed at all. When we were doing the list, 
I hadn't heard of anything after Mulholland Drive. But this movie, it should be in our book, right? Because according to Wiki, it was rated <laughs> one of the most underrated films of all. Th- well, I guess our book is underrated movies we recommend. So this could be underrated. We'll have to see if any of us recommend this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that this is probably the least appreciated or viewed of Lynch's career. So if you happen to like it, you would definitely consider this a uh, film to champion. I knew about this one. I knew because of its reputation. This is like Godfather 3, <laughs> a film I've never seen because I've never heard anyone say anything good about it. And similar to Inland Empire, I was surprised. It's Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes. It's got a decent score. Do you think ever once in a while, critics are ashamed to walk out and go, I didn't get it. So it must be genius. (laughs) I think that that is the pressure of the art world. You never want to say you didn't understand it. You always want to be the person that can guide the way. And certainly if you've admired a director's career, you think you have a handle on him. You imagine you know what you're going to get. But I would say probably everyone, including David Lynch, didn't know how to describe this movie when it came out, how to promote it, what to do about it. I was living in L.A. when it came out. I did go the weekend it opened, December 2006. He was drumming up hype for it by actually sitting out there by a busy L.A. street with a cow, sunglasses, and a recliner. (laughs) Is there a cow in this movie? It's three hours. I may have forgotten if there was a cow, but I don't remember a cow. It's about the Inland Empire. There's some pastures out there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's worth pointing out, too. This is probably part of a trilogy. If you wanted to see David Lynch's L.A. movies that began with Lost Highway, continue with Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire is kind of Los Angeles. Uh, It has an identity connected to this town anyway. It's inland. It's 60 miles in from the Pacific Ocean. It's all the region that I really never get to. Temecula, wine country, I've been there a couple times. I will say this. I used to travel all over Southern California for a job I had. I always dreaded going inland. It's just a different flavor than L.A. I'll just put it that way to be nice. I know there's a lot of poorer areas. A lot of people actually live out there and commute all the way into L.A. Yes. Affordable housing on the positive side. You got farms, affordable houses, meth labs. I would go and visit some of the retail stores I had to watch, and in the building next to them, in these strip malls, the economy was really bad out there. There was businesses like squatting. Businesses would just come in and squat and not pay the landlord. It was it was very strange out there. And of course, Nico and her blonde wig and Pomona <laughs> are also out there. There is barely any Inland Empire in this movie. I don't think it was shot there. It's mostly shot in Hollywood and Poland. This was something I had even forgotten from my first viewing, but David Lynch did step away from the United States to actually film in a foreign country, a rarity for him. But he was invited in the year 2000 to go to Poland and really fell in love with the empty factories there and said, I'd like to come back and shoot. And shoot he did. I'd like to shoot as well. Um, I'd like to perhaps shoot people involved with this production. This movie made me stabby. (laughs) You know what, Arnie? I'm just going to say there must be an audience out there that is just salivating right now. Just like when we have to cover some made-for-TV comic book movie. (laughs) Like Wonder Woman. Yeah, some really low-grade horror movie. They're like, oh, Stuart's going to scream. I have to believe a three-hour nonsensical (laughs) art movie and you sitting there forced to watch it. 
You thought hotel room was bad. Oh, my God. My, this is the question I'll save for the end. Is it worse than hotel room, which I've called the worst thing we've ever reviewed? That is a question that I asked myself repeatedly. I don't think that's a hard question to answer. I do feel like it's less entertaining. Well, you also thought I was too harsh on Hotel Room. Well, yeah, I liked Hotel Room a lot more than both of you guys. I think that was clearly a better movie than this one. But is this a movie? I mean, I think that's worth asking. How did we get here? What do we call this thing? Isn't it sad? Like with the TV stuff, the miniseries, we always end up asking, is this a movie? I just think it's funny looking back on previous reviews. Like Arnie was upset that 2001 might be too artsy for it to talk about. <laughs> and now we're here. <laughs> I pray for the mainstream appeal of 2001 now. It's not mainstream. I mean, I think it goes without saying, this is the kind of movie you make when you're spurning the mainstream. And that's always how I've seen it. So where was David Lynch when he made it? Why would he or anyone make this movie? I think there's a couple of factors to look at. One, he was bitter. He had spent time making TV series that didn't get picked up. And he had made movies, even the straight story, that seemed commercial. Disney put it out and then didn't make money. And he, for all of his critical accolades and all the fanboys and goth people that love him... David Lynch just isn't appreciated as an American artist. And I think that this movie feels like him saying, I'm going to do my own thing. By the year 2001, he was developing davidlynch.com, a website in which he would create his own programming. And you would go to the web to stream it. I remember hearing about this at the time. They covered it like on the local news even. And I kept thinking, oh, I'll go to that website someday. I never did. Yeah, me too. And I'm a fan. I thought I would. But that's where you get the weather reports. You know, he famously every day says what the weather's like in L.A. Guess what? It's always sunny. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the joke. And, uh, you know, a lot of little shorts and just weirdness. Some of these shorts are literally interspersed in this so-called movie. Were there rabbit sitcoms going on on DavidLynch.com? Yes, rabbits. I did watch that. That was one of his more popular efforts that was on that website. Wow. I do remember our review of Catching the Big Fish, Lynch's autobiography slash sales pitch for Transcendental Meditation. We reviewed it on Books and Nachos last week, and I know a little bit of what he said about how much he was enjoying working with digital video and didn't need special lighting and didn't need to only be able to film in 10-minute spurts before the film ran out and then take long breaks to change the reels. I mean, he was in love with modern technology in a way where I hear most directors, especially old school directors, hating YouTube, hating the short attention span it causes people. Those are the same people who were championing MTV when they were younger and it was the 80s, but now YouTube is evil. The democratization of video is making major films illegitimate, but Lynch is the opposite. He's like, let's do this. Let's do home theater. Let's do long movies. Let's do internet. Give me the standard definition video camera. It's better than film. And yet there's an irony to this because at the same time, he gets really, really mad that people are watching movies on their phones. He hates the idea that people are stepping away from the movie theater experience, to which I ask, could this possibly be appreciated as someone that did pay a movie ticket price? Is this what's going to bring him back to the theaters? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, is this what your idea of an epic? Is this is this gone with the wind? Is this what we're supposed to come and see? Yes, you mentioned YouTube. I'll go ahead and say it. I don't really like to just watch YouTube videos. I find that very tiring. I feel like when I sit down to watch anything, I want it to have some kind of substantial meat to it on the bone. If something just passes and goes, it kind of feels very disposable to me. And that includes short films. I'm not really a big fan of the short film medium. I would prefer to watch 90-minute movie to nine, ten-minute little adventures. I'd like some stuff on YouTube. How it should have ended and honest trailers are the two that I keep going back to, but it's really hard to separate the wheat from the chaff in that. I use YouTube for educational purposes. MIT, Yale, they got courses on there. I'm learning about music theory, all kinds of things. No, no, and again, I'm not complaining about what YouTube has done for disseminating information. I think it's great. I do go to it. What I'm saying is hit play on YouTube and let things just roll over me. YouTube does have some very Lynchian things where people will take a song and just have it play for 10 hours over some weird cartoon clips. There's some very Dadaist stuff on there if you want to find it. I guess what I would say is ultimately I'm still old school enough that my preference would be to give my time to something longer and that was made for a different format, be it television or movies. And DV, at this time particularly, is not ready. I know that he doesn't like the time that goes into making a film. You gotta set the lights, you gotta set the sound, you won't know what the image looks like until it comes back from the lab. I understand that. I've done that myself. I know those frustrations and the mistakes that come out of there. But I also know that what I'm looking at in this film is not nearly the quality of a nicely rendered celluloid film stock. Let me defend digital video because by 2006, Lucas had shot Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith on complete digital. But Arnie, this was on a $4,000 camera. That's what I'm saying. I mean, even Blade the TV series came out the same year as Inland Empire. All digital looks good. This felt like he went to Best Buy and picked a camera. This was standard definition in the time where high def was really hitting. I want to point out it was not that most movies people would go to a movie theater in 2006 were film stock. Very few, very, very few were digital. Right. Lucas was pioneering in that regard, but it was, the winds were shifting. Transformers, more and more, especially the effects films were going digital. In three years, it would become dominant. We were right at that gateway. But if Lynch is going to be on the bleeding edge, he needs better equipment. Come on, does he not have money? No, he says he likes the look of it. What he says about this image quality is that video teaches you a new way of seeing. And what he was open to was the fact that when you shoot something with film and you shoot it with video, the difference that you get, in my mind, it's the artifacting and the murkiness is something that he likes to explore. He likes underlit rooms in general. He likes playing with low light scenarios. And he was really fascinated with underdevelopment and and how that looks on a DV $4,000 camera. Let me just say, I bought this movie on Blu-ray. Mmm. <laughs> Pristine. We need it. It's perfect. <laughs> when I got it from Amazon, I think it was like the Chinese version or something. It had Chinese characters on the front. I'm like, well, it's Lynch. It must just have Chinese characters. The whole thing had Chinese subtitles. 
And so I turned it off, the subtitles, and then realized about an hour into the movie, I was supposed to be reading some subtitles. It wasn't just a, it was a Dadaist, people speaking Russian and me not understanding. I mean, honestly, with or without the subtitles, I got about as much out of this movie. And then I read it was even filmed in standard def. So I changed, I got the DVD, which had proper subtitles, showing me only what needed to be subtitled. But honestly, I spend quite a bit of money on televisions going for true black that's the big thing if you get an lcd television you get a laser television true black because on most tvs black ends up being either spotty or gray or green here i'm watching this in my home theater that does provide true blacks except in this movie everything's green and pixelated (laughs) and murky and if he doesn't like people watching movies on a phone this movie would be best on a phone the more detail you can see the more headache inducing it is it is it is an ugly film i was in a movie theater can you imagine (laughs) we were all stunned at at the image quality of that but keep in mind i think a lot of it has to be sound design i mean i think what lynch loves about a larger format is the way that he would send special instructions to the few theaters that did play inland empire and just say please crank it to the max he wanted the audio to be really high and he wants to control that i think that might more be the complaint with smaller screens is you're not hearing it in the stereophonic way that he wants you to. These days, he's up for the home theater experience, but he always puts the caveat if you have a big, as big a screen as you can afford and a really good sound system. Right. His sound is his thing. The thing that really made this a movie instead of a series of shorts on davidlynch.com was that he got a new neighbor. And no, it wasn't a gypsy played by Grace Zabriskie. It was Laura Dern. She unexpectedly moved two doors down. They ran into each other on the street. Laura Dern, being an actress over 40, was like, hey, could you write me a role? I'm not working as much as I'd like to. And so Lynch did. He said, let's experiment. And he wrote her this epic monologue that she memorized and they taped. And that is in this movie. At the center of this movie, Laura Dern will appear as a dirty-faced Southerner who's talking to either a police interrogator or a therapist. He's billed as Mr. K, whatever you want to call Mr. K, some Franz Kafka creation. But all of that stuff that she's spewing about depravity and being molested and killing people, all of that was the genesis that made David Lynch start thinking, hey, I can build on this and I can tie shorts I've already made in with new ideas and create a new form of expression. Laura Dern wasn't getting the work she wanted. Is she going to get any work after this? <laughs> <laughs> she produced this film, I noticed in the credits. It was like co-producer Laura Dern. But yet, I've read interviews where she's like, I don't know what it's about. So I don't know exactly how much input she had as producer. To say that she doesn't know what it's about doesn't mean she's not proud of it. She likes this film. And part of why David Lynch sat out there, he said, I'm sitting here with the cow for Laura Dern. I want her to get an Oscar nomination. And, you know, I think the one thing you can say about this movie is that it really does feature Laura Dern, her face, the malleability of it, uh, her expressions. She goes the gamut here. I think she really does give an amazing performance, even if what we get is maybe underwhelming. I guess for me to judge a performance and say it's amazing, I have to see it in a context where there's an expectation that is exceeded. Here, the only thing I can tell you about Laura Dern is that digital camera did not do her any favors. 
hey, I think her acting was good. She, her face was matching what my face was doing for most of this film. <laughs> Those grimaces. She's got a face that made me jump out of my seat. I mean, there, there's one point that I'm just like, woof. Yeah, she goes there. And you want context? I think that's your job, Arnie. What's the plot? <laughs> good luck. I don't know. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I want something. There's kind of a plot in the first third of it. You there can talk is. about that. All right, all right. I'm going to take a swipe. You guys feel free to jump in, because God only knows. After an introduction that features face-blurred people having sex in a hotel and a strange sitcom featuring anthropomorphized talking bunnies and a crying girl watching TV, we meet Nikki Grace, an actress played by Laura Dern. Nikki is up for a role in the film On High in Blue Tomorrows, and Nikki gets the part, but her co-star is Devin Burke, a womanizer played by Justin Thoreau. Devin is warned by his agent and by Nikki's husband, Piatrick, to stay away from Nikki. However, the two are consumed by their roles and begin having an affair while calling each other Billy and Susie, their characters' names. Also, Devin and Nikki are told by the movie's director Kingsley Stewart, played by Jeremy Irons, that On High in Blue Tomorrows is a remake of the film 47, a movie that was never completed as the two leads were murdered. Their affair is discovered by Piedrick, and Nikki, or Susie as she's starting to become, starts to flee. She comes by a doorway in an alley, and when she enters, she sees herself and Devon being told by the director about that film 47. It's like she jumped in time. She flees into the soundstage and enters a door to a fake house. And then she becomes Susie, a troubled prostitute, I think? Tells her stories of abuse to a psychiatrist while hanging out with her whoring friends who dance to 60s pop music. This goes on for about an hour and 45 minutes, where we get more seeds of the bunnies, a woman in jail with a screwdriver jammed in her stomach, and more. And I'm just going <laughs> to gloss over that hour and 45 minutes and say it ends with Susie, who feels like she's being stalked by a hypnotist called the Phantom, but she's attacked <laughs> by Doris Side, Billy's wife played by Julia Ormond. Susie is stabbed in the stomach with a screwdriver and dies while street people give her directions to Pomona by subway. <laughs> My favorite scene. That lighter got real close to Laura Dern's face. I thought they were going to set her on fire. <laughs> Laura Dern looked afraid. Like, how close are you bringing it? Fire walk with me. And after Susie dies, the director Kingsley yells cut. I guess that this was all the film on high and blue tomorrows, I think. In which case, I give on high and blue tomorrows a strong not recommend. But Susie is now Nikki again. But during a screaming of the film, she's attacked by the Phantom and shoots him. She flees and eventually enters the motel room with the crying television-watching woman. <laughs> the two women kiss, and Nikki disappears. Is this a callback to Mulholland Drive? And the crying woman is reunited with... Is that her husband and her son, I guess? I don't know. Yeah, I, you're, good. you're doing pretty good. Yeah, I would agree with a lot of this. <laughs> <laughs> then Nikki is back home at her mansion while a bunch of prostitutes dance to more pop songs as credits roll and I scratch my head in confusion. <laughs> you made us way more sense than the movie does. <laughs> I'm getting the impression you guys didn't like this movie, which is strange to me because you guys, too much to my surprise, Arnie, really went with the absurd abstract ending of Mulholland Drive. Is this not 
more of that ending blown up from 20 minutes to two hours. More is not better. I mean, you, you go back to Wolf of Wall Street. A lot of my not recommend for that was it just went on too long. A film can outstay its welcome in two hours of surrealism. Throw it up on a wall in a museum and let me watch it for a couple minutes as I walk by. The other thing is all about plot. When I was watching Mulholland Drive, I considered that a brain teaser. There was still a murder mystery. There were still things going on that I felt made sense. And I was able to understand what happened in the last 20 minutes of Mulholland Drive. My trick was trying to figure out what was real, what was imaginary, and how it related, which was fun. But I followed what happened. I mean, bitchy actress spurns her lover, lover hires a hitman, lover feels guilty, lover kills herself. So I can follow that. This is cray-cray. Yeah, it's more abstract. It's more extreme. It's more of everything and done in a way that's far less glamorous. The Mulholland Drive was shot on film. Even though it was made for TV, it has a look of old Hollywood. This intentionally looks like cell phone videos of today. I mean, it is really low grade and really unappealing in a lot of ways. But my question is, that is the last two hours for the first hour, I feel like there is narrative. So were you on the bus at the beginning? The beginning here, it's still weird. You start with a record playing, the longest radio play in history, and some, I don't know, hookers in Poland. But at least for this first hour, I get there's a cursed film that's going to end up in death, even though there's no brutal fucking mortar written in the script. I could follow that. Yeah, for this first hour, I was intrigued. I started off really going with this. I had read the positive things. I'd read that it was one of the most underrated films. I had been on a positive streak with Lynch in the past few movies, and even Firewalk With Me, I appreciated some things about. So I turned this on very open to a film that I felt would be challenging but enjoyable. And all right, here's the thing. It starts with the goddamn bunnies. But I even went with that, and I was following the narrative. I can't say I was invested. The opening just was off-putting with the blurred faces, the bad video. And remember, I watched the first hour of this twice before realizing I needed to watch subtitles. So I saw this part <laughs> twice. <laughs> okay. And I figure with Lynch, you throw some weird stuff at the beginning. I'll make sense by the end. It's going to come around to that. I feel like my feelings about this movie, thematically anyway, are identical to Mulholland Drive. I don't get concerned about what it means or decoding what the story is. I feel like that's also true of Mulholland Drive. People will tell you what they think it is, but I think there is contradictory evidence to deny any possible theory. I mean, you could say whatever it is and there would be something to offset that theory. Here, it's just more extreme. What's important, I'll use the air quotes on that, about this movie is that it feels like it's digital video chronicling the death of movies. I mean, the first image we get is a movie film projector shooting into darkness, giving us the credit sequence. Yeah, an old record player, a radio play, I feel like these are all metaphors. This is the old way, and we're going to watch a performer go through the horror of the old way from a director who now is embracing the new DV. And I said with Mulholland Drive, I don't mind if you don't want to read it as a dream or a fantasy of a spurned lover, that you want to just read it as more metaphor. That's cool. Lynch did a great job giving physicality to ethereal thoughts. 
I think that is the difference here. I don't feel like there's that physicality that I would expect from, yeah, a movie. You, you want to talk about Death of Cinema? Sure. Yes, this looks like a movie dying. <laughs> the opening scene, I think it's David Lynch's attitude towards the way Hollywood treats its talent. It's a man and a prostitute going to some hotel and whores fuck. You know, the comparison between actresses and prostitutes runs rampant throughout this movie. I think that that's the way that people, this actress in particular, feels trying to make a movie. But doesn't that feel a little disingenuous seeing what Lynch has done with actresses in his films? You think about <laughs> Blue Velvet. Like, he has done some horrible things to women in the name of film. I won't deny that, and I think that that criticism is quite fair. It's also possible to read that early scene as being from the failed movie. There's a movie within a movie. They think they're making a movie, but it's actually a remake. That what they are doing was done before in Poland, and those actors didn't make it. It was a cursed production, and they died. And these characters here in the hotel room will eventually... The man will get very violent with her. He'll beat her. She ends up in a room watching television and crying. I think it's the same actress. But she's the same uh, Polish actress in these flashbacks, in the... I don't know, 1930s, 1940s, Poland original shoot as she is in modern day locked in that room. And so I think that, yeah, we are seeing the old movie and the new movie. Is that metaphor? In some ways, all movies made today are remakes or redos of old ideas. So that's kind of the way that I read it. And Lynch has definitely been doing that with this L.A. trilogy. I feel like thematically these are Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire are almost identical movies. In certain ways, yeah. With, in my mind, decreasing returns, but yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with either of that. And he's also returning to things he's made. Things that appeared in 2002 on davidlynch.com are here. The rabbits. <laughs> Let's just get to the rabbits, because I don't know that they have a perfect way of integrating with the story. You could argue that they are these characters after the Phantom has hypnotized us, and we're seeing them in different ways. But before they were that, David Lynch, yeah, did make a web series, I guess? Yeah, there's like a 40-minute version of it on YouTube. I did try watching it. Is this David Lynch just doing something to show how much he hates television because it's done so much bad to him? Like, I get the joke. Like, it's weird bunnies and, like, very few lines spoken and then just random laugh tracks thrown in. It's static. Yeah, it feels like multi-camera sitcom from the 80s, except it's being done with by bunnies on an obvious set. Actors wearing bunny heads, we should clarify for those who haven't seen it. And those actors, Laura Herring, Naomi Watts, Scott Coffey. I saw that. Is that for real or is he just messing with us? No, he. they were just hanging out. After Mulholland Drive won them awards, they were hanging out in David Lynch's house and he said, come on, let's do this. Put on the bunny head. And so they did. This sounds like a weird sex thing to me. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't mention Naomi Watts in the credits, Arnie, but she's here. She is one of these bunnies. And the premise of this, I thought it was kind of interesting. I didn't need to watch 40 minutes of it, but it feels like if you assembled the dialogue in a different way, you would actually tell a story. But because things are told out of order, and the laugh track is coming at moments where it, the joke isn't being told, it's very dissociating. And, you know, that's what he wanted to create, a dissociative sitcom, something that feels both familiar and alien and ominous. I think it actually is one of the better parts of this movie. I, I just don't think it fits in with the Laura Dern stuff. 
But that's what Rabbits is. And another web series he made was called The Darkened Room. It was eight minutes long. It was about a girl locked in a room crying. And that's also what we get here with what's billed as the lost girl, this Polish woman who's watching TV, who sees the rabbits sometimes, who sees Laura Dern in her various guises. She will be a character that, yeah, eventually will meet Laura Dern. She, to me, represents modern-day audiences watching a movie after the fact when it's on reruns. After the film has screwed us, <laughs> if this is indeed the <laughs> prostitute. I should have those tears running down my face for the four hours of my life. I will not have back and all the things I could have done to better my life with them. But the bunnies, I had heard about the bunnies. On paper, it sounded incredible. I loved the thought of it. This surrealist sitcom with these rabbits. But when I saw the bits that are in this movie, I saw all I needed to to know everything it was. I don't imagine that there's secrets in the rabbits that would make it better than this. It's weird for weird sake. Yeah, and I liked it as such. I mean, again, to take Lynch back to where I first talked about him as a painter, if you're going through a gallery and just looking at his different phases, Picasso had a blue face, <laughs> Lynch had a bunny face or whatever, I think that it's fun to take that in. I don't know that you're going to benefit from sitting through the whole thing, but I recommend people go and check it out for a little bit, apart from this movie. I, the way that it's used in this movie is something different. Well, and that's what I'm thinking here. I watched some of that. It's funny. I get the joke. It's like the grandmother or any of those other shorts Lynch did during the Eraserhead era, like throw them up on a screen in a museum. I don't know why it's in this film. Yeah, it's both cute and repulsive, which is, I think, Lynch at his best. Lynch is at his best when he's making you laugh and cry at the same time, and it has that quality in a new way. I wouldn't have expected it from him, and yet it's perfect, isolated, alone. Here, crammed into this movie, again, I think what we will find out is that when we get to the first real scene, Nikki Grace, Laura Dern, is an actress who's waiting to hear if she's going to get this big role that's going to make her career. And suddenly this quote-unquote new neighbor, played by Laura Palmer's mom, Grace Zabriskie, comes banging on the door. Allegedly, she lives down the way. I think she's a gypsy. The way she's speaking and all of that, I think she is a gypsy who is telling her about the gypsy curse on this movie that she is going to get. And here's where I think Lynch might put a lot of people off, just the way he films it. There's no reality to this, like the way the camera is shoved in their faces. It's a very wide-angle lens. He does not understand, I don't think. He's his own cinematographer on this. I don't know if he gets that there's minimum focal distance in order to focus, because when he gets really up close, he is below that minimum focal range, and so everybody's blurry. I'm going to go with it here. Oh, you want to give me some, like, crazy, weird, surrealist horror story, which Lynch does. I mean, he's good at that. The whole vibe here I could go with, even though I'm not understanding the beginning of this film, the fact that this woman, maybe a gypsy, comes in and starts talking about curses and how Nikki is going to get this role as a weird surrealist nightmare. I'm going with the way Lynch is filming it. I'll agree with that. I was going with the story. I was just really off put by the look of this film. It was at this point that I was hating his choice to go digital. I was not hating the movie. I was hating how it looked. Yeah, and I'm going to side with that. I understand it's about immediacy for David Lynch. He got an idea, and he could film it right away. Most of this movie is not improvised. Improvised would mean that he points the camera and says, Go! Make it up! 
That's not how it was made. What he did was he wrote the scene and then said, Grace, get over here. And they shot it 15 minutes later. So it was spontaneous in that way. It's like automatic writing. If you just sit down and start writing a story and you don't know what's going to come out, that's how a lot of this movie came out. But yes, it does not help for aesthetics. As someone that has always loved the way that David Lynch movies look, this movie looks repulsive. I really don't think that I would like Lost Highway if every time Bill Pullman was sitting in the dark and dragging on his cigarette and his face was illuminated with embers, if that was all digital pixelated green. No, no, no. <laughs> and I'm not the snob here who loves film, but you pushed me too far. Well, I'm glad we're all in agreement. I'm glad that's not a fight I need to have. This movie looks bad. But I think interesting things come out of this dialogue. A lot of it feels meaningless at the time. But clues are dropped when the gypsy kind of talks about old wives' tales, like how evil was born from a boy's shadow and a girl goes to market. And that Laura Dern's character is going to end up across the room tomorrow on a couch that is how the movie will end. She seems to be an accurate seer of the future. She knows she's going to get this part, and then later the agent does call and say, you've got this part, and she meets with director Kingsley Stewart and her co-star Devin Burke. And I do love Lord Dern's face during this whole scene. Like She looks as confused and bewildered as I do. She does that great. I do want to give her a compliment. Even Arnie said, removing it from the context, I do think she does some great facial expressions as she's being told these gypsy fairy tales about how evil was born. And early on, you know, it's clear that they're going to hook up. She and her co-star, they're on a talk show before they even made the movie. Diane Ladd, Laura Dern's real-life mom, actually pops up to say, hey, are you guys going to get together? And he deflects her in a line that sounds like an insult, but I actually think it's what Lynch is doing. He says, if you're going for shock value, look into the mirror. And I think that's what he's doing. The Inland Empire that he's talking about is not the 60 miles outside of L.A. It's going within. It's automatic writing. It's whatever pops into my head is going to come at you right now. And it's going to shock you. And that's what I'm going to do once these actors get on set and start doing their thing. They go for a table read on high in Blue Tomorrows. Blue and Tomorrows are both themes here as we get lost in time. And we get what is... I mean, let's admit it. The best scene in Mulholland Drive, arguably, is the scene in which Naomi Watts has to rethink the way she does her audition in the moment and gives that great seductive performance with that old geezer. They try to do that here with Laura Dern trying to become Sue and play off of Devin slash Billy, but it just doesn't have the same effect. I am never as enraptured. It, you know, there's a bunch of rehearsal scenes in this movie, and I'm sitting there, and, you know, as a critic and as a reviewer, I'm sitting there trying to think, what am I supposed to get out of this? Why is David Lynch putting this scene in this film that's three hours long, and I'm seeing a lot of things that can be cut, but I struggled with that. If these were supposed to be like that Naomi Watts rehearsal scene where you're just enraptured by her performance, yeah, this fails, because I'm, I'm just never taken in by any of these rehearsal scenes and, and the performances they're giving. 
I don't think this rehearsal was good. I, in fact, wondered if Laura Dern was supposed to be giving a bad reading, like they're seeing the script for the first time. The line readings felt very dead. There was no emotion. And then she starts crying. I'm like, well, that's very good. She's better than he is. The way I take this scene is this movie doesn't sound very good. Jeremy Irons, (laughs) the director, thinks they have a hit on their hands. I'm like, this looks like bad Tennessee Williams that would have played 50 years ago, but modern audiences are not looking for a southern romance where people fan themselves on the plantation and talk about sleeping with one another. That's just not trending right now in 2005, (laughs) 2006 when they're making this supposed hit movie. But this is also the moment where they see someone is on the unfinished set looking at them. We will later find out that it is a fragmented version of Laura Dern and Nikki and Susan and whatever you want to call her. But this is the exact moment now that they're getting into the lines and playing off of each other that the difference between what's in the script and what's in their lives begins to blur. I kind of go with this. I like this thought. Now, there is the scene where Nikki's husband... Who's like a Polish mobster. It's kind of strange. I never saw an actress with someone like that. But you never know. It does happen in Hollywood. I do know of some people that go for the money and that sometimes foreign heavies are the most wealthy. Yeah, I found it strange that she was a struggling actress who lived in a huge mansion with a butler. So, obviously, the money is his. But there's the scene where he's telling Devin, stay away from my wife. My thinking is it's always as two people, right? I mean, one person alone can't cause an affair. He must not trust Nikki very much. But Devin has the reputation, too, though. He has already done this on other sets. Even his manager is telling him in a dressing room, like, don't sleep with this one. And did you notice who was in there? Mm Mm-mm. His agent was played by Jerry Stahl, and we talked about him on Now Peaking. He wrote that ill-fated episode of Twin Peaks while all drugged up. Oh, wow. Screenwriter of Bad Boys 2. <laughs> he came back. They had such a falling out. No, I did not realize that. It's a small scene, though. But yeah, he was in there for a very brief moment. No, well, that's kind of fun. And again, so much of this movie feels like Lynch pulling old friends. It feels like a curtain call. It does feel like someone that is giving up film. And, and having everyone come back to take a final bow or stick their middle finger up. I'm shocked that we just don't get a shot of Jack Nance's like tombstone or something. Like, why not just throw <laughs> that in there? I think he knows that we know this feels a lot like Mulholland Drive. And again, I like the idea of a gypsy curse that there was this movie 47 or 47 that failed to get made because something in the script is so evil. The way I interpreted it was the actors killed each other. That a torrid love affair sprung up and they killed each other. And then once we start going back to Poland, we do kind of see that play out with the girl that's crying in the room. We will see Laura Dern's husband wearing a mustache who seems to be the lover and the crying girl is actually married to a character that's known as the Phantom. So what it seems to be, the curse that's happened is in another version of this story, you cheated on me, so now I am going to curse you to be the jilted husband while your love cheats with someone else. So that movie 47, maybe I'm the only one, but I always kept thinking about movie 43, if you guys remember that from a few years ago (laughs) please let's not haven't seen it but yeah (laughs) i kept trying to decide whose fate was worse like the people who started movie 43 or the actors who died for movie 47 43 is worse that is truly abysmal 
I do think there are ways of tying what we will see later, which come at in very abstract bursts that may feel like nonsense, but I do feel like they could be the original production, the original love affair that sprung up, and the reason why Laura Dern and Justin Thoreau are playing at each other, sometimes in character and sometimes actually in love. I think this is all part of the process of readaptation and that they're making this old thing that comes with all this baggage. Speaking of that baggage, again, another scene that I find very intriguing. I don't know if it goes, I guess it kind of goes somewhere very abstractly because this is a Lynch film, but you get this woman, I don't know if this is in America or in Poland, but this woman speaking to a cop saying she's been hypnotized to murder some people with a screwdriver and then she undoes her bandages and there's a screwdriver stuck in her. I thought she was going to stab the cop. I thought this was a big setup for a murder right there. It was actually shocking. I was, I jumped when she pulled up the stomach and showed the screwdriver. There are a lot of cutscenes. This movie is long, but it could have been longer. There are 71 minutes of cutscenes that appear as an extra on the DVD. I watched that. Uh, Julia Armand has a little bit more to do in there. So the movie within the movie... You have Laura Dern's character is Sue, and she's kind of the trampy woman that's come into the life of a married man named Billy, played by Justin Thoreau. Billy is married to Doris, Julie Armand. So this is the character, or at least the actress playing the character, who knows her husband is going to cheat with Laura Dern. And what we're finding out is that she fears she's been hypnotized to kill someone. Justin Thoreau's character will eventually die. He will get stabbed in a cut scene. So I believe she did that. And that is part of the revenge fantasy of the jilted husband in Poland, the so-called phantom. But yeah, the scene will ultimately look a lot like the scenes between Laura Dern and... I don't know. Is it a cop? Is it a shrink? Is it a film critic? It's somebody that sits across from her named Mr. K. Who says very little. He, he might have a couple of lines. He's psychoanalyzing her. The way I take it is like, these are the people that watch David Lynch films and try to interpret them. And <laughs> Lynch sees this as the critic. Later, he will be the only one in an empty movie theater watching uh, Laura Dern's Confessions. So that was him. I honestly had a hard time keeping a lot of the people straight in this movie. Yeah, agreed. I felt like the first hour was really sparsely populated. Like the scene that should have probably been added to the cut scenes where the director is talking to, I guess, Wiki tells me it's a gaffer. Bucky J. Raise this lower, this voiced by Lynch. I know that voice anywhere. But there's nobody on set. And I'm thinking about Mulholland Drive when they were on that film set. There were tons of people going around best boys people setting up lights caterers assistants there were like 50 60 people on that set of the movie in Mulholland Drive here it feels like there's six people that they could get so I'm like I guess Lynch didn't have enough friends now they're going to start bringing in loads of prostitutes <laughs> and characters and unfortunately there's so many and there's given so little screen time and they're not actors that I'm recognizing and so I can't keep track of this I did not know it was this therapist, critic, whatever in the movie theater later on until you just told me. And there's a character, I don't even know if it's Laura Dern or someone just supposed to look like her. Yeah, it could get real confusing because very little of these characters are given names. The ones that do have names have two or three. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's hard to follow. 
Which is, of course, what he wants. Lynch didn't think that we would all get it or that, you know, only the smart people are going to get it. He's wanting confusion. He's wanting abstraction. Which I could go with if there's a purpose to it. I'm sure to Lynch there is. I'm sure Lynch has a great idea what this is about. He may be the only one. No, I mean, when he even asked for money, he said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just... They gave him... The French gave him money with him saying, I'm going to shoot it all on low-grade DV and I have no idea what I'm doing. When he booked Jeremy Iron, there's behind-the-scenes footage. He's like, Jeremy, I want you to come do an experiment. Like, he didn't say, I want you to be in my new movie. It's an experiment. Everyone was told this is an experiment. To Lynch, he is just letting his ideas flow and not judging them, not questioning them. He's not asking what it means. He'll figure, you guys do that. That'll be the job of this Mr. K or anyone that comes to the nearly empty movie theater. But he's not going to do that. He's just going to put it out in the universe and see what it looks like. Yeah, well, what I'm still trying to figure, I mean, for, we still got a bunch of surrealist stuff to get into, but back on the set, Harry Dean Stanton shows up as Freddy saying, I love dogs. I used to raise rabbits. Do you have a couple of bucks I can borrow for the landlord? I think that's twofold. That's like a joke on producers that are supposed to have money, but actually are always broke. I think that's just like an inside joke about film life. But I also think him saying, I used to raise bunnies, is going to make us make associations with the rabbits. This first hour, there are intriguing scenes, like they're rehearsing in a soundstage, I think, and they hear someone watching them in the dark. And of course, Devin's going to go look to see who it is. They can't find anyone. That's, of course, going to be some kind of weird time loop but there are these little mysteries again i don't have to understand everything lynch is great at creating a mystery i just don't think he ever likes to resolve them he didn't want to do it with twin peaks maholland drive he was never going to do it if that was a tv show and that is the frustrating thing for me is you're asking great questions and then you're going on to another question that is going to be uh the crux of your feelings about lynch then because i think that is inherent lynch doesn't pretend to have answers he only has a way of looking at things and i think he gets a lot of looks out of Dern. I feel like the movie is fairly strong in its best scenes are when we have Laura Dern as either Nikki or some variation on her character in the movie within the movie. I've never been a Laura Dern fan. This movie doesn't win me over. I'll give her this. She doesn't have a lot of vanity. I, I commented on her cry face back with Blue Velvet and she's gonna give a lot of rubber face lip ends but when she's playing the actress when she's even starting to change personalities i'm with her when she goes through that door axon in i did notice that the name of that longest radio play in history oh is that what that was yeah i did not catch that i had trouble understanding the radio guy at the beginning too and it might be a play on words too axon in now that she's acting she's going to disappear into the role she primarily is going to give reactionary scenes or she's going to monologue and i do remember from reading catching the big fish lynch got the idea for even making this a movie because he gave Laura Dern, I think he said a 70-page monologue which he filmed for a web series. The Mr. K scene. Yeah, exactly. That's what I knew this was. And he's like, her performance is too good for a web series. I'm gonna make this a film. But mostly, I'm questioning if Laura Dern's even on the set with everybody else because we're gonna see cadres of hookers and then we're gonna cut to Laura Dern off to the side. I don't know if she's even in the room or if one was filmed in a different place than the other yeah one in poland one in america exactly did laura dern go overseas or was everything just insert shots and editing because she doesn't interact anymore she becomes a viewer of the weirdness but i can't get behind her as a character i feel she's very passive inactive and strange 
She is passive, and I think most Lynch characters tend to be. They're voyeurs, like Lynch himself. And so, yeah, she does kind of hang back in the middle of this movie, and you keep calling them hookers, and sometimes they are. I see them as the muses. If you go back to Greek mythology, nine women were all the different arts, and they represented poetry and dance and mime and and all of, of what was celebrated as the arts in ancient Greek times. And muses have, you know, that word is still used as anything that inspires an artist. There are nine women here, and they seem to pop up to give inspiration to this struggling actress as she's trying to find her character and where she is and what she's supposed to do. Is that why they dance the locomotion? <laughs> yeah, I think so. That might be the little Eva muse. Yeah, I was just wondering, like, is Lynch, like, just having that play, like, you know, in, in chick flicks where the woman is just broken up with the husband or the boyfriend and all the girls get to together and drink wine and dance? Is he just doing a parody of that? What is going on? Why are we doing the locomotion? I wish we spent more time with characters. I wish that I understood exactly what was going on when one pulls up her shirt to show her fake tits. This is just all very strange for strangeness sake and not in service of anything else. Now, admittedly, when I watched Lost Highway, I was a big fan of the vibe and there is strangeness there, but I was able to roll with it and go with a mood. So that's where I became in these scenes is how does this make me feel? feel instead of what are they saying i stopped paying so much attention to dialogue and how it made me feel was honestly really it was tedious it was not providing me much because there isn't a good score here yeah every so often they're gonna make me literally jump because i had to crank <laughs> this thing up but it was just like mulholland drive these ominous rumblings instead of anything that was making it more i guess i'd say like an opera where i don't care what they're saying the music is speaking to me here the music isn't speaking to me the characters aren't speaking to me and then when they start blaring <laughs> doo-wop i literally like jump out of my seat this movie i'll give it this it had like six different jump scares for me just because all of a sudden something is shrieking. And that's again the way Lynch told them to show it. Make sure you turn it up extra loud. I want to jolt these people. I want that continuous shock. I want them to look in the mirror and get that shock. And I like Lynch's ominous droning sounds. I really dig that stuff. So I'm liking that here. Here's the problem. It's one, I feel like Lynch is falling back. And we've talked about this. We're always bringing up Twin Peaks. But I do feel like he's falling back on a lot of his iconography, which at this point is getting tiring. There's a red lamp. He loves red lamps. At one point, there's going to be some red curtains. And here's the thing. I had to split this movie into two nights just because it's three hours long. That's a lot of movie to take in at one time for me. So I watched an hour and a half. So I got about 30 minutes of surrealism i didn't know the next night when i turned this on i was going to get another hour and a half of this stuff basically so as much as i like the droning and, and these horror aspects which is a big reason i like to race her head so much it's it's just so much and it's just coming at you it's i'm being force fed a lot of things and it's a lot to take in Jacob, I'm right there with you. I have a confession. I pride myself in marathoning for now playing. We did The Stand. I watched The Stand in one day with bathroom breaks only between episodes. I do not break this stuff up. This movie, because especially I got an hour's later start than I wanted to because of replaying the Japanese subtitles, 
I couldn't do it. After 90 minutes, Marjorie came in to tell me she was going to bed. And I'm like, you know what? So am I. I will finish this tomorrow. I could not do this in one sitting. And truthfully, Stuart, you can back me up on this. I finish everything. I've never walked out of a movie theater. I am a completist in that way where if I start a film, God damn it, I'm going to see it to the end. Had I seen this in theaters at about that 90 minute mark, I would have left. For the first time in my life, I would have left. And if it wasn't for now playing, I would never have returned to this. I thought about not returning to it. I really wondered, could I come to this review and say, this is so bad, I couldn't even finish it, not recommend. It repeats a lot of these motifs over and over. Like, I feel like you could miss large chunks of this and you'd still be able to discuss it at least. Yeah, the argument that usually is made for this kind of stuff is you have to go through it. It's not that you're learning more things. It's about the loss of time itself. It's a theme in this movie. And a lot of the cutscenes are about the watch and wearing this watch and what time is it? Is it after midnight? Where are we? The passage of time. David Lynch and a lot of people that make experimental film play with how you experience something watching in one sitting. They aren't making entertainment. They are trying to make things tedious or confusing to various effect and your discomfort is a part of what they're trying to do discomfort is when i watch shites of porn with somebody shitting on somebody else's chest this is boredom i've seen a lot of experimental film in film school and they know that it's not entertaining the the expectation is that yes you are going to sit there and you are going to get bored and what can i do with that boredom that you're lulled and and then i have you because i can jump and I can get you back. The problem I'm having is a lot of what is shocking, surprising, the grabber to shake us from the tedium are repeats. We know David Lynch at this point. We're deep into this retrospective of 10 films now. And I feel like, yeah, I've seen you pull all these tricks before. And it just isn't as weird and compelling as it should be. It feels like an old man doing the things he did as a young man. It doesn't feel like an old man reinventing himself. Case in point, you know, we got a bob here. The thing that is holding the middle of this movie. If there's a center to it, as this woman is falling into an Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole of worlds within worlds, is that we believe that at the center of this is a hypnotist, a circus performer, the phantom, the boogeyman of this movie, who I guess is the cowboy or Bob or mystery man, but we've seen that character a whole lot. The scary guy that seems to be pulling all the strings that no one knows where he comes from. I did find that I wanted to like him more than I could. I liked the idea that there was a film cast that thought they were in control of a story who were actually playing out the will of somebody else. One of David Lynch's friends, another director named Werner Herzog, made a whole movie in which he hypnotized his cast. In the 1970s, he made this movie called City of Glass, and everyone did it without knowing afterwards what they did. I was wondering if it was going to tie into City of Glass. I was wondering if maybe Lynch had done that with the actors. I'm fascinated by the Phantom, but ultimately, when she confronts him and shoots him, it feels very anticlimactic. I guess because he's a phantom, that's why you get those weird faces Lynch is going to superimpose on him. And at that point, I'm just laughing because it's just grown so bizarre. I mean, never mind a guy spilling ketchup all over himself and a face showing up in it. But now, yeah, when she shoots that phantom. He becomes the annoying orange, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> I like the balloon head. You guys seem to not like when Laura Dern's face is stretched across the light bulb. I mean, there are moments in this that work. There always are with David Lynch. But yes, the moments of surprise, genuine shock, are few and far between. And of course, this is his longest movie to date. At three hours, of course, it's an endurance test. And there is maybe, for me, 20 minutes of good material here. I start out liking when Nikki slash Susie is talking to Mr. K and I'm like, oh, is she Lula? I mean, she's talking about getting raped at 15 and fending this guy off. It just, it had that vibe. But the more it goes on, it's just like, okay, I, oh, I'm not getting anything out of this. It's just, there is a bunch of men and you're going to tell me how each man was horrible to you, which I got the point after a couple of times. That's why I compliment Laura Dern because that monologue that David Lynch wrote and said, you got to perform this is so awful. The fact that she memorized it and delivered it with any credibility that's all her. She's the star of this movie. David Lynch is just doing what he does. She's the one trying to hold it together and make it dramatically work. And there is one absolutely fantastic moment that she has in this film. You can say a lot of bad things about Inland Empire, but I will always treasure the scene where Nikki finally gets stabbed. The death scene finally comes. Yes. And that woman, that her co-star, the jilted wife, comes at her with that screwdriver just like she was hypnotized to do. And we think, oh, that's it. She stabbed. No, she's going to spill her guts literally onto Dorothy L'Amour's star, <laughs> walk down the walk of fame. I was wondering, is, is there some Something to that star that she spills all her guts all over. Dorothy Lamore was a, a co-star in the Bing Crosby, Bob Hope road movie. She was always hanging out in a musical, going to exotic locations. She was just sort of the girl in road trip movies. Okay. I, I, if this is a road trip movie, I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> extrapolate from that what you will but it was Dorothy L'Amour's star but when she falls down between those homeless people and that exchange about the bus ride to Pomona there is no bus to Pomona to this day when people say Pomona I will go is that where the girl with the hole in her pussy lives <laughs> Oh, God. This was just more of the same to me. I found no enjoyment here. I just found more strangeness. and I like this scene, maybe because it was finally the fulfilling of this gypsy curse that she was going to be stabbed. So I'm like, ooh, let me see where this goes. Plus, I think it's just bizarre in the right way, and the acting's pretty good. You know, just between these, I'm assuming the Chinese woman and the black woman are both homeless and trying to find a bus to Pomona and arguing that there is no bus. No, you got to go to the station. I'm into this part. Yeah, no, it's a beautifully rendered scene. Yeah, it comes really late and you may already be checked out, but I just think that it is Lynch at his best. You know, the idea that you could be dying on the streets of Hollywood and nobody's even going to notice. They're more preoccupied with their friend and their life. And yeah, they're talking about their friend who's a hooker with a hole in her vagina who can't afford medical help. So she buys a monkey instead. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I may be extrapolating. No, I am extrapolating here, but I just think about like as a performer in the movies, you go and you you pour your heart, literally your heart and soul and blood into your performance and people talk during the movies. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been to movie theaters where people are talking about their lives or texting or what have you and they're just not giving you any, not any love for it. There's just no honor or dignity in this. You are a hooker. You are just dying in the streets and it's playing to empty movie theaters. It's playing to people that don't care and would rather be in Pomona. I would rather be in Pomona than finish 
watching this film. <laughs> I don't know, man. Inland Empire is weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be rude, but I don't go there much. Lynch pulls the same trick that he did in Mulholland Drive, which he did much better in effect in Mulholland Drive, where, you know, you have the lady singing crying in Spanish, and he falls, and it keeps playing. Here, they do something similar, where you have this scene where Nikki or Susie is dying, and then they pull back, oh, there's a camera, this is all part of the movie. But at least with the other Lynch films, I feel like there is some kind of reality I could normally hold on to is maybe a little bit more real than other ones where, again, there's that physicality, there, there's that thing I could relate to here. Laura Dern's going to stand up and walk away and she seems, uh, I still don't feel like, oh, we've come back around to the movie because she's just ignoring everyone. She's a zombie and we're just going to keep on with the surrealness as she walks off the set. That's where I'm at too, is, is it that she just gave such a performance the way the director is telling her how great she was that she's just having trouble coming out of the character or did she think everything that just happened was reality or did we watch the movie he's making I don't know I thought when she came back that this might pull a lost highway you know where Bill Pullman turns into Balthazar Getty and then Bill Pullman comes back at the end and everything finally clicks into place so if I'm hoping for anything to click into place I'm asking way too much of Inland Empire I think it's about performance again she just went through all of these extremes and now you know they got to set up for the next shot in filmmaking that means going back to your trailer and staying with those feelings or if you're a better trained actor putting them aside if you're not method you can leave the character behind but for method actors they have to go and still feel that way while everyone else is like let's do lunch and take five and all of that and again this is a filmmaker that is saying I hate making films I like video because you can just jump right on into the next thing and it doesn't take the time and the toll that filmmaking does. But the weirdness follows her, like we said, into the theater and with the Phantom, and then into an ending I don't understand where we go back to the crying woman. Yeah, there's no conclusion. I mean, other than killing the Phantom, I'm not sure that you can say there is a climax to the film. If there's a climax, is that she meets the viewer at home, that she finally sees that crying girl. They have that transpiring kiss, not quite as sexy as Naomi and uh, Laura making out in the bed. No. <laughs> Not even as hot as Laura Dern and Willem Dafoe with his fake teeth. <laughs> but that's the climax. There is imagery I like. You know, you have this movie called On High and Blue Tomorrows, and you get this shot. I thought it was going to be the final shot, which I kind of liked it if, if it was. Right? But like Laura Dern sitting there back in that house from the beginning in a blue dress, whatever blue means, I don't know, but it matches the title of the film they're doing. It's a, it's a very nice shot. It's a pretty shot. And you know, she's sitting there in that blue dress, and it's, it's a very artistic shot. I think it's a find note to end on if film was going to end there kind of reminded me of alice in wonderland might have been an illusion that they were alluding to uh, it's definitely putting her back in the spot where the gypsy said she would be tomorrow a blue tomorrow yeah this feels like a goodbye this feels like the close to a movie maybe a career uh, most people who make a movie like this don't get to choose to walk away the door is shut <laughs> on them let's go through the locomotions jacob stewart do you recommend I can't even say it with a straight face. Do you recommend Inland Empire? Jacob. 
there is an audience for this. I will say that. I feel like if I was in high school again, when I was just for the first time reading like Burroughs and learning about cut-up theory, like this film would probably seem amazing to me just because I liked things that were so transgressive. You know, when you're a teenager, that's neat to find out about this whole new world where it's not playing by the rules. The way I approach this film now, though, I've always liked playing music. And when I was in high school, played in a punk band, but that's still using chords. That's still using basic music rules. As I get older, older now, I kind of just like messing around with sounds and tone and lots of feedback, and it's stuff I really enjoy performing and recording and coming up with, but it's for me. I wouldn't ever expect anyone else to appreciate it or even understand, like just stream of conscious lyrics. It's just not stuff I would really share because it's more of a personal thing. It's a catharsis for me, not anyone else, and that's how I feel about this film. David Lynch, he must have worked something out filming this. I don't know if it's for anyone. Put it on a projector in a museum where you walk through a installation and you watch five minutes of it here and there and and maybe it means something so I think there are people that are going to just dig this because it's so outrageous and crazy and wild but for recommends is really far now playing audience I'm going to say no I'm not going to recommend it ultimately it's just too long and the strangeness goes on for too long for this to ever come back and be satisfying for me so not recommend Stewart. Yeah, what he said. I mean, I'm a David Lynch fan, and I love seeing him realize his obsessions in film, but I don't need to see every one of his ideas. This feels like going through a sketchbook. Rough ideas. Furniture that hasn't been sanded. Great. Take these materials. Now go make the real movie. Go do the work it takes to create the narrative that's going to hold the audience, because there aren't enough ideas here, certainly at three hours. It's not the length. I don't mind three hours. It's the paucity of ideas. There's not enough of the good ideas here to merit getting through this. And what I like about it, it's much more of a showcase for Laura Dern than it is David Lynch. I think she is amazing in the film. And when she's not in it, when it focuses on the Polish unknowns, I don't really care. What entertainment there is here, it comes from her and her experience. So uh, no, I don't recommend the movie. But I am going to say I recommend it for David Lynch fans for one thing. For me, it finally solved a long-standing question I had about David Lynch. I had been wondering throughout this entire retrospective, does David Lynch love freaks or does David Lynch mock freaks? Is he cruel or is he kind to the abnormal? And now I think I have the answer. This movie taught it to me. It's neither. Characterization is purely a painterly effect. He could love them or hate them in the moment, but all he's trying to create is mood. And this is a lot of mood that he obsessively loves, and if you like his mood, you get a lot of it. But I think you're better served by watching them in the context of his better movies. So, it's a not recommend. This movie is long, and in fact, I I always go back. I've never seen the movie Chocolat. <laughs> We're going there? <laughs> Saturday Night Live had this news segment where they had a movie reviewer who came on and said, it's chuckle long and chuckle boring. <laughs> so that line has always stuck with me. And so when I get to certain films that are two and a half, three hours and not engaging, I always think chuckle long and chuckle boring. But it's not that three hours is a bad running time for a movie. I've had this conversation on our Facebook page about a week or two ago where somebody asked about length of a film and I said, a good movie is never a minute too long and a bad movie is never a minute too short when you have 180 minutes of a really bad movie that's torture the question i asked myself an hour in when there was still a bit of a narrative was well 
It's certainly not hotel room bad. <laughs> that is what I'm wondering. Is it hotel room bad? Is it worse than hotel room? Yes. I knew it was bad. I didn't even like the narrative portion. I knew it was going to get a red arrow and I had two hours more to go, unless it went someplace spectacular in the last two hours. The thing I was asking myself when I went to bed about 90 minutes in was, is it worse than hotel room? <laughs> Is it? I mean, hotel room was a new low. I don't want to have a new low every couple of weeks. And then when I finished the movie, I'm like, it's just like hotel room, only twice as long, which makes it twice as bad. Hit a new bottom. Strong, strong not recommend. What a terrible, shitty note to go out on. I can't enjoy any performances here because there's no characters to whom I can even cling. Laura Dern's in a bunch of scenes and she changes characters twice, but the way she acts, I think she's seven or eight different characters in here. And that may be right, that may not be. I don't know what Lynch was intending when he filmed all of this, but the person giving the confessions it seems different than the person watching the locomotion seems different than the person having the love affair. I got nothing for this. It's chaotic nonsense. I like what Jacob said where you can watch five minutes and then walk away in a museum. I actually went to the Museum of Sex in New York and they have constant porn on loops, which brings in crazy homeless people. But it's there, so you watch like two minutes and walk away. And yes, I think if you watched two minutes of this, you'd get as much out of it as if you watched 180. Again, I hate this film. Not surprised. I, I thought you might say it a little louder. That's my only surprise. I thought you might actually have to be sedated in order to give this <laughs> review. But that was a very calm, direct denunciation of the film. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I The movie makes me sedated. It puts I, me I to sleep. I think he's just worn out from it. <laughs> yeah, it exactly. put me to sleep. <laughs> Literally, I went to bed. Yeah, I agree. As crazy as it wants to be, what's so surprising about it is how little it gets under your skin. Most of the time, it is a lull. It is not... Uh, uh, on the edge tension. And Lynch is at his best when he's getting something at, out of you, even Wild at Heart. I mean, I thought that was too much of a movie as well, but it invigorated. I mean, there was something infectious about the way those characters behave that came across to the audience. Here, yeah, I think that people are going to be checking their phone. They are going to be asking about a bust of Pomona. If this is David Lynch's idea about the next wave of filmmaking, I don't think I want to see them. I don't feel like I'm ready. I don't feel like I'm involved enough to enjoy that. It's just not my idea what a film is. And I would go the opposite way. I don't think anyone should ever feel inferior or not evolved enough because they don't like some guy's pretentious art house film. I think that it's his failing, not yours, Stuart. He made the movie he wanted to, obviously. And that may have been the last movie he ever makes. What's kind of shocking is this is the only thing we got out of him as far as features go for the entire millennium. He, he seems to be done. And again, that curtain call, that last part of it, all my old friends coming out and kind of having a laugh at us, Sinner Man, it feels like Lynch doesn't want to come back. If you look at what he has been doing in all of these years since, it's mostly been painting and music. You know, he's recording songs. He's doing music videos for others. He even did a Duran Duran concert. Yeah, why are we ending on that note? <laughs> You know, we could have, I suppose, but uh, I, I think it speaks for itself. And honestly, I think concert movies have less to do with the director than they do with the artist. Maybe we'll do it for a Duran Duran re retrospective. <laughs> I just feel like this was a man that just decided that filmmaking, television making wasn't for him. And yet, we aren't done. It's worth pointing out, next week, it begins with Twin Peaks. Should this make us nervous what he's going to do with Twin Peaks with full control now?
It has made me nervous, honestly. But Mark Frost is writing all of this. Yeah, but we know Lynch will just throw out the script if he wants. My truthful thought about Inland Empire is we've always discussed the phrase art through adversity. And film is a collaborative medium in almost every case because you've got a director, a writer, sometimes the same person. You've got actors bringing their own spin to it. You've got producers guiding a project in many cases. This is what happens when Lynch is let to run wild. Yeah. Similar in certain ways to Eraserhead when he had absolutely nobody to answer to. But here, there's Showtime who wants to recoup perhaps $200 million. There's Mark Frost who's going to try to keep him on track and is writing books about Twin Peaks and is into the mythology of it. I pray that through collaboration, he returns to the David Lynch I like. Instead of being authoritarian, he makes this nonsense. But it is possible based upon Hotel Room, based upon Inland Empire. It's possible this new series of Twin Peaks could be utter shit. Here's the way I look at it. His best work is Twin Peaks the pilot. His worst work is the movie Fire Walk With Me. So it probably will fall anywhere in between that range. And maybe scene by scene. I mean, I honestly think that it, we could have great episodes and terrible ones. And it will be all Lynch. That is not all good or all bad. But it will be all Lynch. And that is what's curious about it. A man that stepped away from the medium, said he didn't want to do it, almost didn't do the Showtime series at some point had even bowed out of that. I think it had more to do with money than anything, but has suddenly decided that he's willing to say more about a series that seemed dead as a doornail. It's going to be a curiosity. As a David Lynch fan, no matter how the quality ends up being, I can't wait to see it. I'll agree there. I'm very excited. It's coming now, so hopefully people can join us at nowpeakingpodcast.com. I swear, the worst episode of Twin Peaks aired so far is so much better than this. Jacob, do you agree there? You and I both had some strong opinions on a couple of episodes second season. I don't think Inland Empire is a total failure. There's interesting things, but I'd rather watch everything else Lynch has done before Inland Empire again. Yeah, I agree with that. That's It's not my least favorite Lynch movie, but it would be the last one picked for the sports team. It's going to sit on the bench. This or Hotel Room, you'd have to put a gun to my head to watch, and then if I had to pick one, I'd pick Hotel Room because it's half as long. But... Yes, all those reviews for the old episodes of Twin Peaks and the old books from the classic days are at nowpeakingpodcast.com. We've got a review of the book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, coming later this week. And then, yes, the new season of Twin Peaks. If you got a season pass at nowpeakingpodcast.com, you're going to get reviews of all the new episodes for part of that season pass. So that's going to be like 50 episodes or 50 hours of Twin Peaks content reviewed for $29.99. Or you can just get them at 99 cents an episode. Plus, we have our other donation drive going on, Pirates of the Caribbean, coming very soon. Plus, Aliens and Planet of the Apes. And next week, Stuart, you were talking about those bad superhero TV movies. We got two weeks of them. (laughs) Oh, goody. Wonder Woman. There's two Wonder Woman ones. I don't think there's any Wonder Woman, but somehow we found them. (laughs) There's Kathy Lee Crosby in a TV movie that was meant to be a pilot for a series that never happened. And then just a year later was Linda Carter in a pilot for a TV series that did happen. 
Okay, well... Linda Carter, I know that series. I have some affection for it. And I'm curious about this. If the DC Universe is going to take off, I think putting it on Wonder Woman's shoulders is the smart thing to do. Best part of Batman v Superman. Yeah, I have some hope that this could be a good one. The first. I am hearing good things from people who've seen it early, but I'm, I'm not getting my hopes up too high. But yes, we've got that. And also next week, Alien Covenant. A week from Friday, that is the new Alien film. I have also heard good things from people who saw it early. I don't know. I'm not reading reviews, but I've heard some good buzz from people who've seen the whole thing. So I'm excited. Good. <laughs> I'm the Alien fan. I'm not. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I already went through it. Prometheus, uh, for those that haven't heard those shows, that was where I turned on the series. And so can it be course corrected? Of course it can. Do I think it has been? I don't know. I'm sequestering. That movie doesn't exist to me until I walk into a movie theater next week and experience it. I don't want to see anymore. I don't want to know anymore. I just want to have the experience and make my own decision about whether this prequel idea was a good decision on Ridley Scott's part. We will find that out next Friday, so hopefully you can join us with that donation series. And so, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, there are consequences for one's actions, and there are certainly consequences for wrong actions. And this movie was a wrong action. I figured one day I'd just wake up and find out what the hell yesterday was all about. I'm not too keen on thinking about tomorrow. And today's slipping by. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Quitting time already? Past. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to NowPeakingPodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. This is exactly what we need. And go to BooksAndNachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks-related books and audiobooks. Who could have known? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. You know some stories, but stories are stories. Hollywood's full of them. Thank God. In this case, the same thing. Stories which grew out of imagination. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You have a couple of bucks I could borrow. Thanks. I got a lot of nerve, I know. Seemed like only yesterday that I was carrying my own weight. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. It is an unpaid bill that needs paying. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I guess he'd worked himself into some kind of frenzy. Now Playing's Inland Empire Review is edited by Stephen and Arnie. Got it. Uh, now playing credit narration by Brock. I'm listening to you, but I don't hear you. 
The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. There are consequences to one's actions. And there would, for certain, be consequences to wrong actions. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Well, sometimes people don't say exactly what they mean. And you have been guilty of this all evening. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. The Marilyn Levin Starlight Celebrity Show will be back next week from Hollywood, California, where stars make dreams and dreams make stars. because one of the people talking had a thick accent they felt they needed to subtitle it. Yeah, it might have the same subtitles. It's like in Crank 2. Yes, with Bai Ling. characters show up. They, <laughs> yeah, Bai Ling. Who you do need subtitles, even when she's speaking English. But no, I like this. This or Hotel Room, you'd have to put a gun to my head to watch, and then if I had to pick one, I'd pick Hotel Room because it's half as long. By the way, I'm selling two copies of Inland Empire, one on a Chinese <laughs> Blu-ray and one on DVD through our eBay site. <laughs> it was for this scene. Again, you broke up pretty heavy. I'm getting a really bad connection. I didn't hear anything. Stuart there? Oh, I may not be there now. It's not up here that way. Oh, this is very Inland Empire. I'm hearing you fine and having a conversation. He can't move out yet. We got to finish the podcast <laughs> before he leaves. He's like, fuck it. It's 8.30. I got to pack. Yeah. So close to the end. I know. Ah. He can hang up after recommends. He can just recommend and then yes. walk away before I 